0: Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, your weekly source for questions and answers around equity in yoga, hosted by Jeevana Heyman and Amber Carnes. Join us each week for powerful conversations with thought leaders at the intersection of justice, knowledge, and practice. Welcome to episode 28. I'm your host, Amber Carnes. In this episode, Jeevana Heyman sits down with Susanna Barkataki. Susanna supports yoga practitioners to lead with equity, diversity, and yogic values while growing thriving practices practices, and businesses with confidence. She is the founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute and runs 200 and 500 hour yoga teacher training programs. Jeevana and Susanna have an in-depth conversation about the philosophy and history of the yoga and social justice movements of India. This conversation explores lessons and takeaways from the traditions, practices, and movements of yoga to bring social justice and advocacy to the forefront of our wellness spaces. Hope y'all find this helpful. Here we go.
1: Hi, everyone, this is Jeevana. Um, my pronouns are he and him. And I'm so excited to be back on the podcast today with Susanna Barkataki, one of my favorite people. Hi, Susanna. Hi,
2: Jeevana, hi, everybody. <laughs> Great to be here.
1: Welcome, thanks for joining me. Yes. Um, so I didn't really introduce you, but I wonder, if could you introduce yourself a little bit? Could you say <laughs> something about you?
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I, my pronouns are she, her. I am on unceded Seminole land that's colonized as Orlando, Florida. I'm from England, I was born there, and India, and I see myself really as a yoga unity activist. My work takes on different forms, sometimes it's writing letters, sometimes it's writing books. Sometimes it's agitating or rabble-razzing. Other times it's building community and foregrounding the work of other people. Uh, But all of it is about creating more unity within myself and with the people around me and for the yoga community, and also preserving the tradition of yoga for future generations. So I, I think that's how i describe myself i'm also a mom <laughs> i have yeah. an eight-year-old little being who i love raising and brings me so much joy
1: yeah that's great um i'm a dad too i don't talk about it that much i'm so excited about your new book i i just finished reading it um embrace yoga's roots courage courageous ways to deepen your yoga practice um since I'm having trouble talking, maybe could you tell us a bit about it actually?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, you know, this book, like you're a writer, Jibana, and you've been so supportive of me as a writer. And um, for anyone who has written anything, you know, journals, books, articles, it's a whole process. And so this book actually started as a series of essays about my family, and about my family's experience with yoga. Uh, So my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, and really like more, almost more of a biographical and autobiographical exploration of what it is to practice yoga in the diaspora and in India today. And what I realized as I was writing it was I really needed that catharsis of like the pain of not feeling like so much of what we were practicing was being seen or even being recognized in kind of the traditional Western um, yoga world around me. But those stories needed a framework and they needed a context. And so I actually submitted that an initial kind of like selection of essays to mm-hmm. a publisher, and it got rejected. Uh, oh, so, yeah, and and I understand why, um, but I was like, okay, I'm going to toss this out. I'm a teacher. I was a teacher for, you know, almost 18 years of English and history, and so I realized, all right, this book maybe needs to be a workbook. It needs to be just something very tangible and usable and uh, a concrete tool that people can come to and look up, like, what is cultural appropriation? What is spiritual bypassing? How can I use these concepts in my teaching, mm. in my practice? And so it turned into a workbook. And then over time, uh, it came back into the, fr- the framework it's in right now, which is as a book, but a book that is filled with with reflective processes yeah. and inquiries. And so for me, it's like my hope is that the reader takes that journey as well in a way like uh, it's a conversation between their world of practice and or your world you know of practice and experience of yoga and deepening in it and like opening your heart and opening your heart to more empathy and other experiences whether the reader is you know from within the culture like indian or desi or white you know another person of color different experience entirely the intention was we would all be able to empathize with a different kind of frame of reference from reading yeah. it and then get tools we could use to foster more connection.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's incredibly well organized. Like that's the part that really jumped out to me. I mean, other than the content itself, I just feel like the, the, the way you've put it together um, is so clear and concise and you have addressed so many different issues in this world of you know yoga and social justice beyond just appropriation. I mean, you address a lot of like everything I could think of actually connected to this, uh, to this topic. And it's in such an organized way. And I, it's funny, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I, you know, I'm just finishing writing my book, which is on similar, similar topic about yoga and social justice, but my book is so not well organized now. I just, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I, I should have looked at your book first, you know, but, um, you know my book is kind of meandering and more personal stories mm-hmm. so I, I just want to go back to what you said about those essays are you going to go back to that other original idea at some point is that yes I mean, i'd love to share i'd love to see those myself and know that you shared them with the world i'm sure they're so important
2: you know i will when it's the right time i have about nine mm-hmm. books do you know nine <laughs> <laughs> And I'm uh, outlined in my Google Drive. Oh my god! So I do hope to to come so circle back around to some of those. <laughs> I do. I also want to touch on that because, you know, I think we can do this thing of like this person wrote this book in this way and it's so clear and it's great. But like those stories that you wrote or that you, cause I know I got to contribute even a little bit to your book. It's mm-hmm. like the stories you've called, the stories you're developing, the ones you're telling your stories, the stories people listening are holding and living and sharing are so important. We all have mm-hmm. different windows in to how yoga and social justice form this tapestry of, you know, wisdom and knowledge. I think of it almost like we're each these little light points of Mm. wisdom and knowledge. And we all illuminate one another, but no one of us is like, you know, the center or the sun. We're just all forming this web, this beautiful web of knowledge.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And I I think it's true. I mean, everyone has something to contribute. And it's always interesting to hear ideas um, explained from different points of view. And actually, I think that's. I think it shows the importance of this work is that there are many people writing about this now. You know, I mean, the idea of yoga and social justice. I mean, I, I know that you, you've you been working on this a long time, but don't you feel like things have changed? Like, it's, it's not this just outside idea anymore. I mean, it feels like it's becoming more central in terms of what yoga practice is.
2: So we've worked in the world of yoga and social justice, or really, like for me, they're inseparable and my path to the practice of yoga came from work that was about justice mm-hmm. and equity. You know, it it, it never was separate. Right. There was never a time those two things didn't coexist. I think that's not always the case for, for some practitioners and that's okay. But as we go deeper into a full and expanded yoga practice, which is a practice of ethics, a practice of breath, a practice of sovereignty, I believe we find our way to the Mm -hmm. heart of the practice, which is really about our own and one another's liberation. And so it is really heartening. I mean, wow. You know, also, like back in the day, I – I'm just thinking of the early 2000s. That's like when I started teaching. No one really cared what I had to say. You know, I was still saying the same things, but no one listened. And I sent out blogs weekly and uh, it was just like crickets, crickets, crickets. Seriously, you know, my best friend would write back and she'd be like, nice blog, Susanna." You know, or my mom would write. (laughs) Um, And for years, really, literally years and you know, I, I know. It, on one level, it's like, isn't that the definition of of like insanity? Is doing the same thing over and over again. And result, but I was just devoted. I just knew, like, this is why I am here. This is part of what I came here, you know, to do. Is is practice yoga for my own uniting of my divided self and also try to share what I've learned from my family and my teachers with others. And, and so it just brings me so much joy when we all get to, we get to experience different voices. You know, I think about intersectionality a lot too, because uh, what some of my training was around seeing the connection between subjects or connection between mm. um, issues or even disciplines and so in that same way we get to we get this much broader picture, a much more kind of worldly and, and diverse picture when we've yeah. got people of all different experiences talking about how they live yoga to practice inclusion to practice you know accessibility, diversity, social justice yeah. It's really mm-hmm. beautiful I mean I'm curious your experience with that. Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, well, again, I I came to it from activism first. I mean, I was an AIDS activist, you know, as you know, and that in yoga, I was just practicing for myself and then became a teacher really with the intention of making yoga accessible to my community, mostly people with HIV and AIDS. And that was what that's that was my that was the intention behind my teaching to begin with. And it really hasn't changed. But um, yeah, I think I was I felt like such an outsider um, Mm. for so long. And, um, I remember meeting you actually, um, Mm. you know, and, and reading your work. And then we met, I think through yoga and body image coalition, and then through Mm. yoga Alliance, we were on some, um, a task force together. And yeah, I was always impressed with your clarity and dedication. And I'm, I'm just, I agree that it's important that we hear multiple voices and multiple perspectives. I think yoga is, um, I think it actually it speaks to the truth of what yoga is. I mean, that's what, always, what I want to share mostly about this topic around yoga and social just justice is that this is yoga. It's not about changing yoga into something else. Um, just like I always say with with accessible yoga, a lot of people think it's about adapting yoga to people for people with disabilities, and that's not really what accessible yoga is. It's it's really about um, reaching into yoga to find that um, the heart of it that's already universal and already accessible and sharing that and i feel like we, you're, you're doing the same with um these teachings around social justice and yoga show kind of exposing um the heart of yoga you mm-hmm. know what yoga really is it's like you're i don't feel like you're putting something on top right you're mining it um, for the truth and what you do in this book actually i think really beautifully is kind of weaving the social justice issues and like really specific issues around um the work that we need to do in social justice and the concepts that people need to be aware of and weaving that in with the yoga teachings in a really beautiful and like clear way like this really is a did you call it a manual or textbook i mean it really is like a a textbook yeah,
2: like a textbook or a workbook yes and and i wanted it to be that right so so it could be also, for people, I think a lot of folks listening are kind of like, you know, we we are in agreement that our yoga practice needs to include everybody, and that we we need to uplift voices that have been marginalized. I think so many of us feel that way, uh, but we may not know quite how to speak about that with you know, a studio or with a company that we're working with, or even with colleagues or with our students. And so Mm -hmm. part of my aim was to like, give us a language as a community, as a yoga community is like what are the words that we can use and how can we talk about these things that we see in a way that can help us shift them?
1: Now my dog's barking, (laughs) 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 but um, hopefully she won't bother us. And Um, Yeah, and I actually even noticed you have like a sample letter in the back of the book, like here's a sample letter you could use um, to write to a a conference or event that's like um, has no diversity, right? Like that doesn't really have presenters that show the diversity of um, yoga practitioners, right? So I thought that was really direct action you're offering.
2: I can't tell you how many times I have sent that letter. Like decades, right? Uh, I've modified this letter, uh, and it's not complicated. But sometimes, it I needed the words. I needed to see someone else's words to be like, oh, I can just write to them and be like, Mm -hmm. oh. As far as I understand, yoga is a tradition that comes from India and created and founded and professionalized, organized by black and brown people for thousands of years. So I have questions about why your event look lineup looks like it looks, you know, and, and not, I try to be also, and and I think this is really key. I try to stand on the same side. I mean, sometimes I'm a little oppositional, right? And, um, but i try to stand (laughs) on the same side with people and, and get kind of next to them and be like, what do they care about? How can this, help them right and so I'll say I have these 5 10 20 wonderful practitioners that would be such a great addition to your lineup um would you consider hiring any of them you know and and so I've written those letters probably for two decades and so I knew that one of the things I wanted to give people is the chance to take that on if they so are so inclined yeah. and so the book does move through this process of uh, first understanding uh, the separation and the causes of separation. And so naming all of the isms and the problems that we see like racism, you know, like oppression, those types of things through reflection, looking at our part and our role and where we sit in the, in the kind of power privilege um, dance and then reconnection through action. So concrete ways we can start to bring these concepts alive in our communities and our studios and our classes and then the final part is liberation right so how do how do we take this and make it concrete by going back into the yogic philosophy even perhaps lesser you know popularized practices like japa practice or you know um, tratak you know focusing our gaze which is can't so japa is like repetition of mantra um, japa uh, would be that and then also for tratek which is like candle gazing but also uh focus of drishti like where are we putting our attention and so if i'm looking at these yoga events say i'm, I'm searching for yoga festivals online in 2021 i'll use that gaze that drishti thoughtfully oh i see these wonderful festivals but I don't see queer folks. I don't see um, bigger body folks. I don't see folks of different abilities. I don't see many folks of color. Oh, what can I do? Let's move into action and say, I love what you're doing. How would you consider bringing in these people and make what you're doing so much more rich and bring different perspectives? And, you know, for again, for many years, it didn't really work. It was was crickets. But now when I write Uh those letters sometimes people answer directly to even it, but sometimes they they just change what they're doing right so they don't mm. answer me but there's a big company recently uh that was advertising these mindfulness programs or something online it was all mostly white teachers and now it's totally changed and they've, wow. they've foregrounded all these teachers of color um to teachers of different experiences and even though I never got a letter back, which I certainly wish I had, you know, or a note saying, thanks, we're going to improve or something. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's these little drops that, you know, water the, the soil of uh, better action, you know, or growth for people small and large.
1: Yeah. I mean, thanks for doing that because I feel like also the burden shouldn't rest on you. I mean... <laughs> 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 you know, I, I think what, what I see is here is like you're teaching through this book and um, sharing the truth of yoga and how it relates to social justice and how it's about liberation for all of us. Um, and, and I feel like people need to take that on themselves. You know, like a yoga practitioner, I, I think I think what it is is that we're, I feel like we're redefining what yoga is right now. Mm-hmm. it's been because of the way it's been appropriated it was like defined incorrectly um, and I think we're reassessing that now you know and I think yeah. that's what that's what I feel like you're doing and is trying to say wait no that's not that wasn't correct you know that was a misunderstanding yoga is not just advanced physical postures um, that's not the goal of the practice um it's not about personal enlightenment either it's actually about this community it's about Compassion and and caring for others and making change in the world, reducing suffering not in our not just in ourselves but in in the world, right? Reducing suffering for other people.
2: Yeah, I really think about you know the times that I spent living, you know, not and I say this, I'm going to share something about living in the Khandi Ashram in Warda, where there were a number of practitioners, yoga practitioners, who really. Like when you're there, it all kind of makes sense because yoga is living right action. And so you wake up, you do some kind of service for the community. We would often be cleaning up the streets or working in a local school. Yeah. Then you come back and you work and you make your breakfast and then you do a little more service and then you come back, make your lunch, a little more service, you know, and yeah. there's chants and practice, you know, yoga asana or pranayam or Um, mantra practice in the morning and the evening but the majority of that yogic lifestyle really is a lifestyle of a way of being that is of service and it doesn't matter whether like in that case I was you know on a practice retreat so or when I was working and living in Bihar at a school and teaching and working throughout the day or in Los Angeles working at a school it's all the same thing we can we can orient ourselves towards a path Mm. of practice throughout our entire lives. And, and it, it, so we don't have to go. I mean, it's wonderful if we can, but you don't have to go anywhere. You can be right where you are and still be a really profound practitioner of yoga through service and through tuning into, you know, reading the the scriptures or reading um, whatever the path of practice is that calls you to go deeper.
1: Right. I love that. It's this constant like going within and then going out. And it goes, you go back and forth and you do, you're you're doing the practice to make yourself stronger, but so you can even be of more service. You know what I mean? It's like your practice is service because it's about taking care of your body so you can be of use in the world. Right. And I feel like we've lost that um, in contemporary practice. We've lost the service. Yeah. That's really the theme of my book, actually, um, is focusing on that this idea of, um, courage and compassion that yoga makes us strong, but also it makes us compassionate and want to take care of others. And in the book, um, I want to go back to that kind of the, the tradition of that within yoga. I mean, you talked about service as a tradition in most ashrams and I know the times I've spent in ashrams. That's, that's it. It's all about service. And that's what my teacher taught me. Um, but you mentioned you bring up Gandhi and I, I know Gandhi is a little bit controversial actually. Um, but, what Gandhi accomplished through the yoga teachings is incredible. And I think he showed how there was a tradition of using yoga um, as social justice and as t- to make concrete change in the world. Uh, you talked about his, about his idea of Satyagraha. Do you wanna talk about that a little bit?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think about that a lot because I agree. I think he's a complex figure and problematic in many ways and you know, we hear about Gandhi a lot, but the movement for the liberation of India mm-hmm. was not just Gandhi, right? It was it was hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who yeah. were practicing Swaraj, which is self-rule, swa self raj rule. And yes, Gandhi was one of the more well-known, but I think it's also important to kind of not um not uh, what's the word, like take away from the accomplishments of individuals, but also look at the unnamed
3: Mm. thousands
2: and millions who, without whom the practice of nonviolence wouldn't have effectively liberated India from the British. And so that practice is what I was really interested in learning and um, experiencing when I was traveling in India. And I did get to experience it through different teachers because Swaraj and self-rule, the kind that Gandhi was teaching and that these practitioners were practicing, is really about saying, how am I giving away my power? One, where is it being taken from me, right? Where are there systems of oppression, which are not my fault, but are the conditions that I'm in and that I need to address? So really having a very clear-eyed look at power and the dynamics of power that are at play in one's life? And then two, where can I experience or or create as much space, as much sovereignty, as much self-rule in these conditions as possible so I can use that inner power to shift the outer power structures? And I want to give a really concrete example because it sounds very abstract, Um, but it's incredibly useful. And I'll give an example in the US, because I although there's countless that I experienced in India as well. Mm-hmm. So I was working at a public high school. And there were um, many, many students of different backgrounds, you know, all socioeconomic experiences. And the district put in truancy tickets for students who were late. So they weren't just like in trouble when they came late. They Mm. got a a ticket, a fine for $250. Well, what that did was end up, you know, for many of my students who had to work overnight cleaning hotels, cleaning houses with their families, or, you know, maybe their parents didn't have a car to drive them. and The bus was late. You know, the the public transit bus, they would end up in school and then getting this ticket that they couldn't pay, their families couldn't pay, and they'd end up in the school to prison pipeline. So this was a huge social issue, right? And and one of the first things we had to do as we looked at this injustice, this inequity, and looked in a clear-eyed way at the power structure we were in is the students had no power. They really didn't. And um, and they were under the the... The, there was like the police, we had the school, the structure of the state, all of these things working against them. But what they did have was the power of their youth, right? The power of their will and their excitement and their their drive to learn. And we organized, uh, when I was a baby teacher, I like to think of myself as, and I was maybe 21, so just a little older than some of the students I was working with, they had to believe that they were worthy of an education before they could go to, you know, like the the meetings, the city council meetings or the school board meetings and speak up and say, this isn't right. We are children. We deserve to learn, you know. And so once we began organizing and kind of looked in a clear way at the ingest structures, but also at what power the students and then the young adults that were supporting them, what power we did have, we were able to utilize Kind of the moral and ethical. Um, I, I think of it like a fulcrum. You can't see me, but I'm like holding a pen uh-huh. <laughs> and putting another pen below it, right? It was like a fulcrum point that mm. pushed on the heartstrings and like the compassion and the goodness of these adults who, when you're against a state, system that's like doesn't see people's humanity hmm. it's really tricky but if you can find that spot that's like wow we're children and we deserve to learn This isn't in just law this is not right it's stopping us from learning we want to learn we just can't you know get to school on time for these reasons that are beyond our control we were able to overturn that law. so now in LA there's there's no uh, fine uh, students just get uh, a wow. note. You know and and so, yeah, so this is a concrete example of that kind of Swaraj. And of course, those students, you know, it was thousands of students who ultimately were involved in that campaign. But many of those students who are now uh, a little bit older have gone on to do different, taken on different leadership positions, or in training to be lawyers, are working on immigration, you know, they, through that process, they also found their own inner power that led them to empower others, right? So it's always this kind of virtuous cycle of a win-win-win, maybe not always, but that's the aim.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful example, thank you. I I was thinking about how um, that movement also impacted, and it was like kind of the nonviolent protest, beginning of nonviolent protest, uh, at least that we know of. And, um, you know, that's influenced Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, and of course, Black Lives Matter now, as we see. But Mm -hmm. I I guess my question though, I was thinking about um, Swaraj and that this idea of power, and I wonder, could you talk about how that would affect us individually, like in our own personal practice too, when we learn how to take that power back?
2: Yeah, I think about this so much, Divina, because you you might know, but people listening might not know, I feel like I was, such a disempowered person like i was mm-hmm. shy i was small i felt really um like at the at the whim of mm-hmm. the social conditions around me like controlled because of my gender controlled because of my race like unable to really like be or speak or do anything and so i felt really powerless as a young person uh incredibly powerless and i think you know, the world discriminates against people for lots of different reasons. And so um, people listening, you know, you might have felt or feel powerless for different reasons as well. And what really helped me was naming those structures, understanding like, oh, the fact that I'm walking home as a child, you know, from the bus stop and strangers are driving by and saying sexualized things to me when I'm 10, 11, 12. Like, That has a name, you know, Mm. that's called sexism. That's called patriarchy. I didn't do anything wrong, right? That was not my fault. And so when I'm able to give names to the forces that are out there that are at play in my life, you know, homophobia, heteronormativity, um, including the forces and the systems that are invisible but are privileging me, right? Like heteronormativity um, or you know, being cisgender, these things allow me to look at the power I have and the power that maybe I would lack if I wasn't aware. I always feel Mm. like, you know, knowledge is so much power. Mm. Language is power and knowledge is power. But really it was like the language, giving that language to the things that were happening to me, I no longer felt like a victim and I felt like I could – kind of like fight back, but not in an aggressive way, but in a way of knowledge. Like, okay, you know, I'm now that doesn't matter so much. Like those names, I'm going to stand up or I'm going to say, this is a big one for me. Like, that's not appropriate. You know, talking to me that when I had to say that to students, to colleagues, to bosses, like that's Mm -hmm. not appropriate. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: just that clear, grounded, internal stance uh, i think of it i'm like lengthening up kind of like i would if i was taking a tadasana you know holding back mm-hmm. feet planted like i deserve respect just like you deserve respect or anyone deserves respect and so when i can come from that centered place uh, an empowered place regardless of whether the systems around me are trying to treat me as powerless I can reclaim some of that power. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that 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 means that individuals are responsible for systemic oppression, right? Um, So I'm not saying that. Yeah, that's
1: always a hard one, right? To to describe that process of gaining power without sounding like victim blaming. It's interesting, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. Because there are certain things, you know, that will never like they'll never be better, right? Like when I look at yeah. things in the past, the oppressions that, yeah. that children face or that you know marginalized folks face, like that's that's just not right. And no amount of internal power is gonna but make that right.
1: Can you but could you say more about how how can our personal yoga practice assist with that? I guess is what I'm wondering. Yeah.
2: About. Yeah, right. Well what's so powerful really is that yoga cultivates shakti, it cultivate, you know, which is power, it cultivates an yeah. inner kind of power uh, that then, you know, it's like that centered way of being so we can face things we're terrified of or challenges or even systemic oppression or just structures like, you know, college tests or standardized uh-huh. testing, things that are really challenging. Um, legal challenges we can face them from a different place a place of centeredness a place of maybe even detachment a little bit like for me a lot of the power comes from the Gita from the, Shloka, the um 2.46 and 4 through 4.8 is do every action you must do mm-hmm. do not be attached to your actions fruits this mm-hmm. skill in action is yoga and I really take that to heart, you know, and come back to with the campaign, the one that I described, the community rights campaign, or with any social action campaign, or even personal thing, you know, When I've applied for something or tried to achieve something. It's like, I will do this thing, like with the book, right? Like I will write the book, Yeah. whatever happens to it is up to, it's not up to me. Like this I am writing because I have to write it. These letters I write because I have to write, but the result I can let go of. And that's not easy. You know, I say that, but it's like a continual practice of coming back to Mm -hmm. like, how do I let go? How do I let go? And there's so much power in that because Mm -hmm. when we are doing what we know in our heart and our soul is the right thing, the result then, you know, it's like we're free because how people receive it and take it, uh, mm. we're, not, we're not enslaved to that anymore. And so often it's those moments that our actions can have so much power. Mm. So I, I really have found and see that it's going back into the, the basics, right? Practicing ahimsa, practicing non-harm, practicing satya to ourselves and to others, um, practicing asteya, non-stealing, brahmacharya energy, management, you know, a parigraha, what I just described with the Gita shloka, letting go. It's those practices of yoga that cultivate inner power. Um, right. Wow. I mean, I love it's, it's that. So incredible.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. Thank you. I, because I, I think that's lost a lot in the contemporary teaching of yoga as a practice to cultivate power, um, especially for people who don't have it or don't feel like they have it. You know, and, and and so often either we're taught to practice in one particular way, you know, that there is like um, a right way to do our practice. But actually, it's if you if I feel like if you have um, if you feel like you're oppressed or have a marginalized identity, that's what yoga can help to do is to to give you power back, you know, and I don't hear that. I don't hear that very much.
2: So true. It, it really, it's tricky because I think because of that issue of sounding like we might be um, putting that responsibility on those who are target, you know, targeted, but Mm -hmm. yet I think there's like a way of saying there's, you know, something beyond power and powerlessness And that is shared power. That is a power that's beyond, you know, external control. I think a lot about internal power and internal motivation and how to, as a teacher, how to cultivate that in students, you know, that's when you know that someone has truly taken something on is not when they do an assignment for the grade, but when they truly love to learn for their own growth. And so power in a way is is like that too, I think. It's like so much in our society has us running after these false idols of power right. like yeah. money status um fame but really like the truly powerful person doesn't need any of those things and doesn't care about them whether they have them or not but they have an inner sovereignty and they have that through a practice that is probably one that they're in intimate relationship with and come back to Mm -hmm. in many different aspects of their lives.
1: You know, you you mentioned power in a few places. That's kind of why I'm focusing on it. I I mean, I think you're most well known for your work with um, teaching about cultural appropriation. And there's a section in the book where you talk about cultural appreciation, which is the other side, like how we can practice um, yoga without appropriating. And, And the first point you make is power balancing sharing power or using privilege or advantage to uplift or support an under-resourced group or people, this is an appropriate use of Shakti or power. Mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, I just love that idea. I think because I think people really, people I see struggle with this idea of appropriation and how to address it. And I just, I love that idea of sharing power. It's like you just said.
2: Yeah, I love it too. And what I love that is that because it's in the practice itself, right? It's literally within the practice of yoga right. that we have the solution to the issues of yeah. oppression or things like cultural appropriation, which really cultural appropriation is just a doorway to, you know, colonialism and empire. And so because of that, and it's like the the appropriation just highlights the imbalance of power that exists. And, and so that's why people get so angry at, you know, cultural appropriation of fashion or recently in, in kind of the, the online world, there's been an uproar around non-Indians or Daisies wearing bindis, right? Which Mm -hmm. you're like, what's the big deal? It's just a, a glittery dot, you know, it's just a symbol. But the thing is, it's so much deeper than that. And, not only is it so much deeper, it's like symbolizes the beginning of the universe. You know, there's so much more to it. But mm-hmm. also, it's pointing at these, these imbalance, the imbalance of power and the pain of those hundreds of years of oppression that haven't been cared for and haven't been balanced. And so now, uh, for, for all of us, really, who are in any kinds of positions of power, which If you really think about it, most of us are in some way, including myself, in positions of privilege and have power in many ways. So what can we do with that to have a a meaningful, purposeful, you know, moment-to-moment-to-moment existence is we'll use that power when and where we can to balance, to bring more equity um, to the places that lack it around us.
1: Yeah, it seems like... um... I mean this is what i struggled with in my book is like um if you feel that you're if you have a marginalized identity and you feel like you're oppressed then yoga can actually lift you up and give you power and if and if you are um privileged and you have a privileged identity and most of us do have some form of that like you said we we use yoga to become aware and conscious of that and the way that we use power in our lives so i think it works like on both ends kind of to create balance
2: yeah that's that is the hope and i'm i'm curious what you struggled with which part you were struggling with that
1: just trying to explain how it's not one size fits all but it kind of is it's just that um you know it's about giving us power but if someone already has privilege it's dangerous you know Mm -hmm. there was a research study i don't know if you saw it was just recirculating even though it came out about two years ago it was showing that it said yoga and meditation can make you more egotistical Mm-hmm. Did you see that study? And it, it just made me laugh a bit because it's actually not that simple. It's not, it's not that simple. It's, it's, if you're doing a particular practice and you're not focused on service or using that power in, in a productive way, um, then it could lead to more ego. And that's actually destruct- It's self-destructive actually, right? I mean, it's it's kind of the problem that we see with yoga Um it, you can just build power um you know like we see in gurus that might be abusive or we might see in teachers who are abusive or or not really yogic um so I think it's just that this concept is subtle and sometimes hard to describe how power can and and yoga can uplift someone but also balance someone who maybe is I don't know has too much power is that the word
2: yeah I think that's that's it and so much of it is about community Mm -hmm. and connection there, right? Like the Sangha, um, the the beloved community, as Dr. Martin Luther King would have said, it's really about having people as we're developing and cultivating these powers, having people that we're in relationship to, that we are accountable to, whether that's teacher or teaching community or, you know, um, other colleagues, but people who we can talk to and be in relationship with, so yeah. that we don't just kind of go off and and become completely self focused. And in the book, I talk about healing justice uh, as mm-hmm. and civic engagement, and I think those are really important terms for the yoga community to start to yeah. get comfortable with. Like, it's not just about self-centered healing you know I right. like said isn't just about self-care it's about community care and as we move into this next evolution of yoga in the west which I think we really are moving uh, quite rapidly at, and necessarily and also I can't I'm it can't come quickly enough for me for it to come <laughs> into the mainstream I'm excited for this. <clears throat> Well, you're that,
1: making it happen.
2: <laughs> that's the goal, right? is yeah. uh, let's let's push the culture. Um, but as we move in that direction, we really need these structures that are non-hierarchical and um, and are of community accountability right. and are about, Healing justice and listening to those most marginalized, you know, and uh, for me that would be listening to Dalit and uh, outcast Adivasi folks um, People who in my community in the South Asian Desi community have been harmed by yoga practice as it's existed in India and in the West Um, Those are
1: the castes that have been excluded like are not allowed to use Sanskrit. Yeah
2: Yeah, and and although when you look back at the history of yoga, the the earliest practitioners were rebels, were on the outskirts of these kinds of structures, um, were not doing that kind of oppression. The way that yoga was used through the caste system, you know, through yeah. through so much of of the history of of India, that is a problem that um, myself or anyone like me should be addressing, and and. Likewise, as someone who's a settler colonial in the U.S., right, I need to address yeah. the unsettling of myself and others and bringing uh, agency back to indigenous folks and also right. to black folks who I've benefited from without you know, permission, essentially, by being here. So there's so many ways that... I think about with the power I have, I am in relationship to and responsible to these other communities.
1: And the, and the way yoga is being used in India now um, by wow. the current government, um, you know, as like a oppressive force almost. Um, it's really disturbing. But I want to go back to this idea of community. And you said, I, I feel like what, what you're getting at is um, healing justice or social justice as like, almost like, that's to me that's like the goal of yoga on a larger scale. It's like you could think mm-hmm. of the individual practitioner has this goal of enlightenment, but enlightenment on a community level is social justice. So that's where I kind of feel like that's the outer expression of the practice. Um yeah. in the manifestation of our yoga practice in the world is is justice. And and I wanted to read a quote you have actually in the book that's so direct. I thought you said it very clearly. You said there's no yoga without justice. There's no peace without yoga. No justice, no peace. <laughs> Which just made me laugh because like, there it is. Like, that's the slogan. Like you hear, if you go on any march, you know, out in the world, if you go on a protest, like you're gonna hear no justice, no peace. And like, I love that you just directly connected that back to yoga.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I know we're, we're old activists, so here <laughs> But it's true, right? Like peace comes like it is a practice that cultivates peace. And yet that peace doesn't just stop with you or with me. That peace really is about ensuring that there there's the accessibility and availability for peace and joy and, you know, soulful expression for all other beings. And so that's where justice comes in
1: yeah and actually there's a line in the gita i got you know i don't have it in front of me but i'm gonna have to maybe i'll send it to you later i can put it in the show notes there's a line in the gita that's very similar to that mm. um you know that without what does it say It's something like without peace um how can anyone have happiness and it, you know it's talking about it's the end of chapter two and krishna's teaching about um a sage you know of steady wisdom what they're like and and de- krishna's describing that without peace, you can't have happiness. And that's what we're looking at. And it seems like that's kind of what you're getting at too. Like actually you're saying um, without peace, there's no justice and they're they're intertwined, right?
2: They really are. They inter-are.
1: Inter-are, there you go. I know, I also love that because I love um, the work of Thich Han, and I I really, um, I see that a lot in your work as well. Yeah, Um, I don't know if you want to say anything about him.
2: He's been such a huge influence in my life. You know, I met him in two thousand and four, and studied and practiced mindfulness and meditation with him for the next, like, you know, until he stopped teaching about five years ago. And why I was attracted to Thich Nhat Hanh is really because what he did with Buddhism is. Create and he speaks about it as engaged Buddhism. He took the Buddhist path, which is a very similar path to a yogic path, right? They're they're sibling practices and said, we're going to modernize and update this and also bring it into action in the world. And so that practice, like a practice that says, you know, Buddhism is not a dogma to fight, kill or die for, right? Mm -hmm. And, And that, when I read that, you know, I thought, oh, this is someone who is practicing the essence of what, you know, my grandmother, um, you know, Lakshmi Devi Barkataki, like she taught that, like she lived that. She practiced a radical inclusiveness. She, in her time, you know, even despite the caste system was welcoming and would feed anyone who came Mm
0: -hmm. to uh,
2: past her house. And so a lot of the, Teachings that I had gotten from my family, I saw embodied in him as a t- as a teacher, and um, and I'm just so grateful for yeah. for everything he's given. Because the the other piece was really it was him saying uh, as a someone who was an immigrant, someone who was living in exile, that he felt so not at home. So profoundly not at home wherever he was, because he wasn't, he wasn't even allowed to go back home. Right. But uh, he was doing walking meditation one day and he understood that wherever he was, he was at home in himself. I couldn't have heard that message from anyone else, you know? It was like, like as if like Nelson Mandela was telling you, you know, this is how I came to love my enemies. It was like that, you know, except internal because of who he was and what I knew he'd gone through and what I'd gone through essentially, you know, as being kind of like a a, a refugee from political violence into the U.S. Uh, I could hear that from him. And I was like, oh, okay, so I can find uh, home in these practices I'm being made fun of for in the culture and the language that I'm being excluded or mocked for that itself can be a source of, of homecoming. And uh, I'm always going to be grateful to Thich Nhat Hanh for that.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, I, I was, I'm so influenced by him just in his writing. I never got to study with him, um, but just his ability to describe that, seeing yourself in others in a way that i think other people say that and it it, it, i mean it kind of it's nice to hear other people say that but when he says it and he writes about it in his poetry it's just mind-boggling the way he literally sees himself in others and uh in all beings it's it's so profound um so i actually quote him quite a bit in my book too but I, I found the quote in the in the Gita that I wanted to share with you. That was the it's um, chapter two, shloka sixty six. There is neither wisdom nor meditation in an always changing mind. Without a meditative one pointed mind, there is no peace. And without peace of mind, how can anyone be happy? Um, and that just reminded me of what you were trying to say. I don't know if that feels connected.
2: It really does. You said it was. Oh my gosh! Yes, sixty-six.
1: Well, this is I have Swami Sachidananda, who actually was my teacher, and I love that you you use his uh, translation um, in your
2: I book. I do. I really yeah. like his translation. Yeah. Um, yeah. With no peace, where can joy be? And it's true. And and for us, I think it's like here we're talking about he's the the text is talking about the undisciplined have no wisdom, right? No one pointed concentration. Well. Our concentration, personally, right, inner concentration, can be on a single point, whether it's our breath or our steps or you know whatever a mantra. But our concentration socially, like us as a mm-hmm. community, um, our one-pointed concentration really needs to be on uplift, on liberation, on our interconnectedness. Yeah, and and that will bring us to that peace as a community and to that joy both internally you know as individual practitioners but also collectively and i feel it happening you know like honestly from the early days of practice where people were uh, so competitive and and that vibe in yoga spaces of you know just i'm better i want to be seen um that is so much less. And it may just be the communities and circles we're in. But Mm -hmm. those communities and circles are no longer the fringes, right? Like folks listening, we're all the mainstream, like we really are becoming the norm. And so the thing I think about a lot, Mm -hmm. honestly, with that is, well, who might we be leaving out, like, if all of a sudden, we're the cool kids, right like if for someone like me what what are you even talking about no one you know wants to hang out with me but we are like what mm-hmm. we're saying and what we're doing it's compelling it's seductive because it's so freeing mm-hmm. and so then right we get to keep doing all of this and lifting each other up and having a great time doing it but who may we be missing and who might we be excluding and how can we open the door or like roll up the mat or mm-hmm. you know whatever it is that, that we can do to Ensure that there's no one that we're leaving out.
1: That's a beautiful, beautiful question. And I love how you you related that reading from the Gita to the community again. I mean, you just, you made that leap that I think is so important um, and and so powerful. So anyway, I don't, I don't want to keep you too much longer. So I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to share about the book or is there anything that I didn't touch on or, or something you think that's important?
2: Hmm. <sighs> You know, um, I think the biggest thing is that I hear one is from white folks are like, "I'm a little nervous to read your book, Susanna, not mm. everyone, of course, but some people are like, "Am I gonna read it and then you're gonna tell me not to practice yoga or not uh-huh. to teach?
0: Uh-huh. and
2: and so I want to just say and and I'm gonna address both sides of this right because the other side is folks of color like i feel like there's not going to be anything in here for me because you wrote this for white people um and both are not true right like one my main aim is really to get us to think critically and to practice vitara, you know a practice of inquiry and reflection and critical thinking and and viveka as well like to really be discerning in our in our way of being. But I'm not here to tell anyone what to do. Uh, I'm just trying to shed light on these social issues as I understand them. And so um, so don't be scared if you're feeling nervous. Uh, <laughs> don't be scared. <laughs> also to, and, and, uh, and really try to have it be more like a conversation and remind folks to like come back to themselves and to come back to the practice, to hold the tension if it's there to come to a more Uh, productive place. I'm now you can't see me, but I'm bringing both hands like parallel to one another. And I learned this from Hegel from philosophy, right? Like you hold this creative tension, if you can imagine pulling a rubber band Hmm. between two hands. And if you pull too hard, the rubber band snaps, right? But if you don't pull enough, then it's slack and there's nothing really happening. But if you just hold the tension enough, a new possibility, so my hands are now going up above that, that those two poles, there's a new possibility that forms. And then from that new possibility, you hold some tension again, right? So it's how we grow. So it's an invitation to growth mm. for folks who might feel nervous. And then if someone's like, well, I don't think I'm going to get anything from this because you didn't write it for me. Uh, the truth is I did, right? I wrote it for, for folks of color as well as white folks in order to be able to have the kind of catharsis of naming Mm -hmm. forces that are at play and then feeling a confidence in standing on the ground of like i do belong here i you know any marginalized folks you know people who felt like they don't belong or aren't welcome like actually this is for me and so the invitation is there to to and just also like the welcome to to um explore and have it be like a balm, you know, that is not a bomb, but a balm. <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> yeah. Soothing bomb.
2: A soothing, a soothing bomb. Yes. Thank you. That yeah. that's there to help um kind of bolster you up and give you strength and um passion and words and inspiration to to keep coming into the practice and to turn back to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I highly recommend it. I think you did an amazing job. Really. You, you really are teaching. I think you're um, offering so much information and it's, like you said, it's useful for people who are marginalized and those who are, don't think they are and might have privilege, you know, to learn about how to be more sensitive and to use their power more wisely and to share power. But also you just like describe, you like define terms and, concepts that i think we hear being thrown around a lot and you just lay them out so clearly you know just it's so generous um Mm. it's such a generous offering Uh, and so just so well organized and concise so i just feel like like again i think it's a textbook that every yoga teacher and practitioner should have in terms of navigating um this the future of yoga which is yoga engaged yoga practice Mm -hmm. we need to be familiar with all these ideas and concepts i think you know these days you can't avoid this it's just not possible
2: yeah we really do and i'm so grateful for you and for the community for the accessible yoga community and everyone exploring these things you know i think we're we're iterating and we're the ones that are cultivating these new norms that will hopefully become mainstream. I think even in our lifetimes, it may become a completely different landscape. And that's that's what I see. And I'm just so grateful to you and to, to all the folks in this community.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Susanna. I, I really appreciate you. I, I really um, appreciate your time, all the work you do. All the st- you sh- you share so much on social media too. So if people don't know you or follow you yet, they should because you're so generous there. Um teaching and dancing around.
2: <laughs> I have so much fun. You see, right? Because there's a yeah. sign that if you're going to teach about these intense issues, you got to make it a little like an edutainment, right? Um <laughs> There's more to get to the mainstream. I'm willing to dance a little bit. That's you know awesome. what I mean?
1: <laughs> that is so awesome. On TikTok, you're dancing weird. on TikTok.
2: a message out there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, like that's a good way to get it out there. You're doing it. I'm so impressed. Like, I'm not brave enough to go dance on TikTok, and, and you're doing that. So, oh, we got to wow. dance on TikTok oh together. My God. <laughs> you're, you're incredible. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. I hope people will go out and get your book, um, Embrace Yoga's Roots. Is there like a special way for them to buy it or just go on, hopefully, not you Amazon? If you,
2: yeah, if you go to embraceyogasrootsbook.com. You will get a link to anywhere that you can, you know, anywhere that books are sold, as well as for folks who, you know, it just isn't accessible to buy a book, you can get a a pretty substantial free excerpt uh, that goes into a lot of what we've talked about. So you're welcome to do either one.
1: All right. And um, one thing, I wonder if you have one question we can leave people with we like to do that on the podcast i I know i've kept you a long time but do you have and there's a lot of questions here um, around power i think in particular i don't know if you have a is there something people could consider
2: yeah i was thinking about that as we were talking which is i would love people to i'd love you to really Meditate on where you have power and where you can use that power to uplift someone else like concretely, you know, like something you can do this week. And then where you might not even have realized that you are lacking power and is there some tending? Is there some acknowledgement of that? That you know, Or maybe even just language or naming of that that first needs to happen um, as you move towards perhaps bringing care or empowerment there?
1: Okay, perfect. Those are perfect. Thank you so much. Um, anyway, thanks, for, thanks again for being here. And Thank you. To you and I appreciate hope. you
3: so much, yes. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another week of the Accessible Yoga Podcast. I am Kelly Nicole Palmer, a Black queer writer, artist, and community advocate. I serve as the editor for the Accessible Yoga Podcast and a staff member for the Accessible Yoga Nonprofit. I am a teacher trainer, a yoga teacher, and I have my own nonprofit based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Race equity work is an important part of what I do on and off of the yoga mat. I want to make the world safer for folks who hold underestimated and under-resourced identities. I want to make it safer to enter wellness spaces and also to just exist in a world still upholding systems of oppression. The shift in our world and wellness spaces is getting stronger and stronger, asking each of us to lean in. I'm excited to announce that a new cohort is forming for my course Race and Equity Disruption as a Practice. The next section of this 12-hour live training will run from February 24th until March 5th, 2021. If you've been thinking about engaging with this work, we have a live info session with me on February 17th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Get clear on your role in dismantling white supremacy and activate your yoga practice for social justice. Together, we can begin working towards the future we believe in. As a participant in this course, you will be invited to investigate how you participate in and uphold systems of oppression. I'll ask you to awaken to how racism and white supremacy show up in your yoga communities so that you can shift your perspective and work towards change. In the end, it is my intention that you feel empowered to shift how you show up in wellness spaces and be an activist and ally for others. Join the waitlist now at AccessibleYogaTraining.com. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can also suggest a topic, ask a question of Amber Orchivana, or recommend a guest that you'd like for us to interview at AccessibleYogaTraining.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.